for August 7th, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 475. What if they built a dark tower and nobody came? This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like, well, we're kind of like your smart, funny friends, but on the internet. We're never happier than when we're hanging out together, watching movies, watching TV, listening to music, reading books. Yes, we read some books, too. We're going to talk about some today. Can you believe it? Uh, I'm Matt Rather. I am joined by uh, Overthinking It veteran podcasters, Peter Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matthew. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. Hey, hey. We are joined by a uh, sometime guest on the Overthinking It podcast, sometime co-host Richard Rosenbaum. Richard, it's a pleasure to have you. Howdy. And we are especially honored today because we are joined by Zach Johnson, the world's foremost expert on Matthew McConaughey, uh, <laughs> who, uh, who joins us uh, to uh, talk about this week's topic. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Zach is, uh, has the company Asymmetric Games. They are responsible for uh, our favorite uh, online line-drawing-based comedy RPG uh, adventure, um, Kingdom of Loathing. And uh, their new game, West of Loathing, releases this week, August 10th, on Steam. A uh, little more about that later. Uh, so we are talking today about Dark Tower, the uh, the film adaptation starring Idris Elba, um, and the Stephen King novels. Now, I haven't read the novels. If, uh, a couple panelists on the podcast have. Uh, the film is a, a terrible movie about interracial adoption, and that's <laughs> and that's uh, that's really all you need to know about it. So let's just leave it there and uh, talk about West of Loathing uh, <laughs> for, <laughs> for a little bit, um, uh, which which like. Uh, uh, like Dark Tower is set in some version of the Old West. Uh, Zach, what what was the sort of genesis of this game, and uh, and how did you kind of settle on there being enough material in a uh, in a comic uh, single player RPG set in the Old West? Um, well, the, the way that that Loathing Games, I guess at this point you can say because there's more than one of them work, is not super constrained by genre. So I wasn't really worried about running out of running out of dumb jokes to make. Um, but I I've always sort of been curious about why there aren't more role playing video games that are set in the Wild West setting because to me it feels exactly as ripe for that kind of thing as the sort of like quasi medieval European setting that the typical kind of swords and sorcery fantasy stuff has. It has, there's, there's sort of an immediately accessible level of technology. Like you, you see anything in a, in a screen or in a, in a, in a movie scene or, or a depiction of the old West and you know exactly what it is and what it does. Like it doesn't have like the science fiction problem where you have to explain what any of the basic things are. Yeah. Um, it's got it's it's full of just sort of pat good versus evil tropes. It takes place in a sort of naturally hostile environment where there's treasure and a lot of fighting all the time. And it, it has always struck me as weird that there weren't more games in that particular setting. And and I guess I, I just decided to finally make one. 
well, yeah, it's uh, we, we have all played it. By the way, we've we've uh, had review copies of of the. So we won't spoil anything, but we want to. Uh, but we want to talk about it a, a little bit. Like one of the uh, what, another hallmark of of loathing games is that they are. Um, very well written, like very, very humor- humorously written, and the the writing and almost the re- the relationship between a kind of narrator and the player is one of the you know is one of the um, the uh, hallmarks of of the gameplay experience, at least in my sort of limited uh, gaming experience. And I guess this is like other kinds of uh, single player single player role playing games. And it takes me back to like my first uh, gaming experiences like this were Infocom text adventure games, uh, notably the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy game, which was completely difficult, like impossible to, to beat without a walkthrough of uh, all the items that, that you needed to get because it was absolutely un, unforgiving. Um, you couldn't make it to the end if you had not picked up the aspirin in the first, in the first room that you, you find yourself in. Um, is there uh, I, I mean, is, I haven't played to the end of West of Loathing. Is, is it that cruel to the player? Certainly not. Um, you know, we we all. Uh, so the 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 writing was done by you know it was maybe twenty percent me and eighty percent Riff Connor, uh, who also does a lot of the writing for Kingdom of Loathing and has for for many many years. We all grew up on those games, definitely. Um, and I think that 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 Hitchhiker's Guide game is is sort of an interesting artifact to think about. But it, it's a game that's hard to play, even if you're looking at a walkthrough, just because of the yeah. because of the way that it that it that it. It kind of insists on the other game that, that Douglas Adams helped uh, Infocom make was called Bureaucracy, and it was just about navigating complex bureaucracies and filling out forms and stuff. And it was just just dogmatically cruel to the player. And we definitely don't do that. Like we we decided early on that we didn't want it to be like an old adventure game in the sense that if you needed a needle for something, there wasn't just one needle in the world. And if you didn't find that one, you were screwed. So we just sort of decided, all right, there's going to be a needle in every haystack. Yeah, I loved I loved the synthesis you guys arrive at between having that sort of isometric exploration oriented, almost like Sierra King's Questy kind of vibe, but without those sort of punishing, oh my goodness, I forgot the shoe, you know, ten miles ago and I have to walk back all the way across the world to pick it up and come back, or I'm just stuck and I'm gonna die for no reason. Uh, with the sort of traditional Square Enix style turn based combat, which I thought was like like a Dragon Quest or a Final Fantasy. It just and it the way that the tone is kind of self-referential seems to give a place for these ways of experiencing adventure games to coexist and smash up against each other without feeling like there's any sort of formal structure that's being kind of violated, I guess. Uh, so I really enjoy it. I really enjoy it. Uh, but, I, but I have a question for you, Zach. I'm interested in it because I think this is true about Kingdom of Loathing, Loathing also. I feel like you can tell a lot about the ideas and the themes behind a role-playing game system by what skills the characters learn and have to learn. So for something like Final Fantasy, it's like, well, you hit things or you zap things with lightning, right? Or you, you know, that's pretty much it. It's all about the combat. For something like Dungeons and Dragons, you learn individual proficiencies in all of the individual weapons in like second edition and it changes from edition to edition. There is such a delight in the way that you name 
the skills that you pick up in the game. And it seems like such a part of the character development. And I was wondering, well, A, what, what's the thinking behind the way that you name skills and refer to skills in sort of indirect ways? It really works with the Old West, where you have this kind of parlance of old-timey and imprecise uh, ways of talking about stuff and a lot of sort of jury rigging and, and things like that. Uh, but also, like, what does it make you – is there something that you're trying to say about – people's specialization in skills in the world, like the kind of skills that people learn in life. Like, do you have any feelings or thoughts about that that might be reflected in this? Uh, I don't know. It's a, questions, questions about what anything is about are always really hard for me because one of the, one of the like fundamental insecurities that I have as a sort of creative person is that I don't really think of anything that, that I or we make as being about anything. <laughs> uh, um, well, it makes sense because there's so much delight in all of it. It seems to come from a place of joy rather than a place of analysis. Which yeah, is a good I thing, mean, you know, often often gameplay will come from something, some, a funny idea that we had for the name of a skill. Uh, right. Is I guess is I guess the real the real answer to that question is is a lot of the time. Well, you know, so we decided early on in the development of, of Kingdom of Loathing that Moxie was going to be one of your one of your three sort of defining statistics instead of you know dexterity or whatever so it became a stand in for all of the all of the things that in a in a more traditional RPG would be like dexterity shooting things or or you know using ranged attacks or getting out of the way of things but also just kind of a measure of like applied sarcasm which is <laughs> another like there a lot of problems in our games you can get around just by you know you, by us having depicting your character making the correct joke to diffuse the situation or whatever and so yeah i mean i, I think a lot of it is just it, it another thing is when it, whenever somebody describes it us as having like sort of carefully hewn to a tone that is more like no that's really just all we can do <laughs> Um, like this is, this is just like, there isn't a lot of difference in the creative meetings that we have between the jokes that we make about what we're doing and the stuff that actually makes it into the game. And I think that's always been one of the, one of the strengths of our team and working together is that like, we're just all sort of game for whatever. And also the, because the like fidelity of the artwork and, and the interaction are pretty low, it's very easy for us to get things into the game before we talk ourselves out of it as too dumb of an idea. Right. And, and it also makes it very easy for us to make a lot more game than anyone expects there to be. Wait, you don't, you don't spend like, you don't spend three months rendering a character or like you know, <laughs> doing a landscape or something. It's, you know, interestingly, we did actually have to have like two other people who don't work on kingdom of loathing at all uh, to make this game rather than kingdom of loathing. Cause we needed an animator for instance. Um, and that's Wes Cleveland is the animator. And he, he, he worked with us on word realms, which was the game that we made before. And is, uh, he's the guy that, uh, he, and I and a couple of other people put on uh, ZapCon uh, via our video game preservation nonprofit, which is a, a show every spring in, in in the Phoenix area where people bring like arcade and pinball machines in. So he's a, he's a longtime friend of mine. And also he, he has just done such a phenomenal job of making this art work that I've been doing for the last 15 years, like actually move and look like something in a 3d space. And I think we've, we've been so, so lucky to have just kind of stumbled into his comedic sensibilities because there's, because of the increased graphical fidelity of this game, such as it is, but it is still, you know, it is a lot more complicated to look at than kingdom of loathing is because that was just sort of 
illustrated text. It we don't get to lean on the text as heavily. Like we actually have to show some things, and I think it was it was really, uh, you know, like I said, we were just we were just lucky to find Wes, who's somebody who could actually bring the same kind of tone visually that we bring in the text just because we've been doing it for so long. Um, and the, the, people should be aware that uh, King West of Loathing is a lush 3D photorealistic realm <laughs> with cutting edge graphics. So yeah, people might not be familiar with this. If you haven't experienced Kingdom of Loathing or West of Loathing, like part of the joke of this is that everything is like stick figure drawn, um, like ostensibly crude, but takes up a lot of sophistication to look good in this in this uh, context, which is which is greatly appreciated. You're definitely going to need going to need to upgrade your gaming box to something with <laughs> with with dual CPUs uh, in yeah. order to take advantage of the the kind of Radeon. The, yeah. Radeon graphics. That's a thing, yeah. right? <laughs> the six, the, the 60 FPS, you know, um, yeah, the, the it's like thing. red dead redemption meets teen girl squad. So it works out <laughs> pretty well. Uh, that is perfect. <laughs> That's really good. That, can I use that as a box quote, Pete? Sure. Sure. If you could attribute it, sure. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, if we ever, if we have, if we ever sell the game in a box, you'll be the first name. <laughs> Come on, brick and mortar stores. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. The, I mean, the, the, the animation, um, adding to the kind of the the humor of it in a way that doesn't necessarily uh, translate in like a, a static thing is um, the the thing that comes to my mind most is that I will never turn off stupid walking mode. Yeah, um, that was a that, that, the, that was the a, best thing I've ever seen. That was uh, that was all West. You 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 can find pretty early on in the game a book entitled Walking Stupid, uh, which was just. I, I guess in in my version of the West, Walking Tall was a book that was written in the 1880s and stuff. So, uh, but but yeah, so then that that just replaces your walk cycle randomly with a bunch of very very a sort of like Monty Python Institute for Silly Walks inspired things that Wes just whenever he wasn't working on anything else, he was just making more and stupider walk <laughs> animations and uh, yeah, and then and then Victor Thompson, the programmer who 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 came to us, the the, the guy who was the lead programmer on this game was also the lead programmer on uh, Infamous Two uh, for the, for the <laughs> PlayStation PlayStation Three, I think. So uh, he he came from he came from a, an environment where there were a lot of like we ended up with a lot of weirdly high signifiers of production value just because of the experience that he brought to the table. Uh, because it was so much easier for him to make this look good than it was for him to make the stuff that he is accustomed to working on look good <laughs> that uh, that he was able to he was able to be really indulgent with it. Um, you know, just things that you wouldn't think about moving to an actual video game because it you you it does take place in a 3D space like it's a bunch of 2D sprites propped up like a diorama in 3D. And that's where the parallax of the camera and stuff comes from. So there is a camera and we don't know as a company how to make a video game camera. So we were, we were again, very fortunate to, to, to track somebody down who uh, was able to bring way more knowledge than was necessary to the table to make the thing that we made. Well, let's, uh, let's leave it there with the game, except to, to say that it has the strongest endorsement from uh, all of the playtesters here at Overthinking It. You can pick it up on Steam uh, August 10th. There will be a link to uh, there will be a link to the Steam store in the show notes for this this episode, and let's uh, let's push on to the Dark Tower, uh, which could only be improved, could only be made <laughs> more lifelike if the actual characters were stick figures. Um, the- <laughs> 
<laughs> their motivations would would be clearer to me. No, I look. Uh, I'm on record. I don't like scary things, and and this film was not scary, but there was an atmosphere of sort of tension that pervaded it. As uh, I was afraid it would be scary, and there would be jump scares and stuff. I mean, I guess there are like some loud things that pop out of you know pop out that uh, attack and stuff, but not. It's not that. Uh, it's not that sort of movie. It's not that sort of horror uh, horror sort of movie. But um, I, I, I I think it must be disappointing to to someone who is a devotee of the novels. Like Zach, I think you're the only person here who has both seen the film and read the novels. Uh, is there? Um, I mean, is there something you can tell us about how you thought of the adaptation? Yeah, I mean, it was only it was only disappointing. It, the only reason that it wasn't a huge disappointment is because I went into it expecting to be hugely disappointed, I guess. Um, because I, I don't... It beat the spread. So, it, it, in the same way that I think Stephen King catches a lot of crap for sort of copping out on the endings of his his books, and I think that in, in a lot of ways, I've always kind of attributed that to him biting off more than it is really possible to chew in terms of the scope and the and the stakes of the stories that he tells. Just when it when it starts to like become about the nature of of reality, like the, when those things are what's in question and what's being messed with by by the villains, there's not there's not ever going to be a satisfying way to end that. And I think that in the same way, there is never going to be a satisfying way to adapt the series of books, which is, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, a couple Harry Potter series in length, I guess. And I don't think that you were ever going to be able to make a movie that really had anything to do with that. So I don't think that anyone was actually expecting it to be a good adaptation. Huh. Yeah. And it's um, been in the works for like ten years, right? And yeah, it comes and goes, and yeah. there's news about. I was, I was, a, I was really surprised when I thought, oh, that movie is coming out next week. Oh, okay, that I like. I, it was a thing that was perpetually ten years into the future. Well, apparently, apparently, um, you had you had good like marketing timing because people were were thinking about kind of non traditional adaptations of the old west, you know, uh, yeah. right at the same right at the same time. Yeah, I mean, I would be lying if I if if I didn't acknowledge the the series of books as a huge influence on more or less everything that, that I've made. Just because it, Stephen King's particular brand of fantasy has, like, when he's writing books that aren't straight up horror books, his he is a very very good fantasy writer. Yeah, um, um, I, I think that the 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 series is interesting because only only the very first book is really what you would call a Western and it's, and it's really like, it's got that it's a Western, but it's also secretly post-apocalyptic kind of which you you learn over time. Uh, It's, and it's like a a civilization that has fallen from one that was aware of our world and all of the other worlds that are connected to it through the, the sort of like linchpin that is the tower that holds all of creation together. Um, so there's a there's a very early scene where he walks into a saloon and and as far as you know it's just a western but then the the piano player is playing Hey Jude and that's kind of the tone setting piece for the whole for the whole book which um, was used in Westworld the the uh, TV show to a great effect yeah yeah which was yeah that was fantastic and not used in this movie <laughs> right yeah this 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 movie doesn't have it, it it's it it feels almost like it it includes certain phrases 
and and wordings of things and like the the like sort of litany that they recite as a as a kind of attempt to just pander to the people who came in there having read the books and say no look this this despite what you're seeing this really is an adaptation <laughs> of these books we promise so so as a as a bit of a doorway into trying to bridge this understanding a little bit um the dark tower huge big or symbol right it's a symbol that's related to culture and related to psychology and it's related to childhood and adulthood and abuse and, and all this and it seems like there's all this stuff loaded in the idea of the dark tower as this fundament uh for those of you who didn't see the movie and are still listening because you don't care whether it gets spoiled or not there's a giant tower it's it's a very similar plot to the final fantasy legend aka saga one if you've ever played that old japanese video game uh where there's a giant tower that can Connects all the universes, and if the tower is in danger, then the universe is in danger. Uh, and the tower is then associated with the psychological life of a small child, which seems very Stephen King esque, right? That that things are things that happen in the world are manifestations of things that are happening inside the subconscious minds of children. Uh, and and as children become adults, it's things that happened in the minds of the children as the adults look sort of inward. Uh, or try not to look inward at the things that help them become the people that they are. But, but the Dark Tower is almost a medieval-level symbol. I mean, I guess it is because it's a fantasy novel more than anything, uh, sci-fi fantasy, more than horror or anything. But uh, but it feels like something out of an old Protestant screed, right? Even if something a little bit out of Paradise Lost, where it's just like, this is the sort of how I'm explaining how heaven works and how the earth works and uh, and how it all relates to who you are and what you're doing. And I guess what this brings me to think is there's an effort in making this movie to make it about a small set of characters and their individual relationships with each other, rather than about sussing out the complexity and the intensity of the symbolism of everything that you encounter, which seems to be just inseparable from the nature of the story that's being told. That it just seems that that everything is really connected to what everything might mean, depending on how you look at it. Uh, and instead, we get a very sort of pared-down, character-driven uh, cable TV episode that's about 90 minutes long uh, that has actors that are w playing way below their depth, uh, way, uh, way below what their depth could be or might be. I'm just, I'm just wondering, from people who've read the books, does, that, does the character story come through, or does this rich symbolism and intensity of the complexity of the world and everything in it, is that more of the pleasure of reading it, or the experience of the characters kind of striving against each other? Is that more of the pleasure of reading it? Almost all of the characters are just missing from the movie adaptation, so it's it's sort of hard to. The, the, so in the, in the first book, the, what, what if they built a dark tower and nobody came? Right? <laughs> um, but it's hard to say. Like, I, I, Richard, maybe you have a better like. Like, just imagine that. Imagine that this is just a story about Roland and Jake. Trying to stop the man in black from from having the breakers tear the tower down, right? And but Jake no, nothing else appears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's weird. I mean, apparently, so you're saying it's about um, the movie is is a lot about uh, like interracial adoption, whereas <laughs> the book series. Well, but it, well, okay, like but has, in yeah. a way, well, <laughs> in a way, the and the not in series, not in a Fenzelian way, in an actual no, in an actual way. way <laughs> the the book series is largely about an interracial relationship. 
Oh, um, there's a relationship. The characters, yes. the characters have a relationship to each other. Do they also perhaps know what they want because that's something else that the movie doesn't have. Well, some, yeah. some of them they know they know they want not to be addicted to drugs. Okay, they okay. Know they want to you know like be treated like humans by other humans. They you know it's you know Roland goes along, goes through the worlds, and starts you know collecting people who help him complete his mission um which for various reasons he you know can't do on his own anymore after like book two um and you know coming to understand himself and finding out about his history there's a lot of stuff about um there's a lot of stuff about like the cyclical nature of history and about uh, the 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 pressure of legacy of family legacy and all of these things coming up against each other and it's also very largely about um, the intertextual nature like the intensely intertextual nature of all, of our culture right mm. how everybody's um, how everybody's mythologies uh, like work together or are sewn together to create the world really is interesting um, and you've got literally you've got like thousands of pages like coming up onto maybe not quite 10,000 pages but almost um if it's like largely the reverse hobbit problem where <laughs> you you know you take a 200 page book and try to make it into three movies instead you take a you know 8,000 page novel and try to make it into one 90 minute movie it's like there's no way you can do it especially because of the breadth of what's happening in the books like um a whole bunch of characters from many many different stephen king books meet each other in this in in the series mm. right that the, the the stephen king multiverse is uh each of those worlds um even the ones that don't take place in the same uh, in the same world, which a lot of them do, uh, but they, they're they're connected through the Dark Tower, and even Stephen King himself, spoiler alert, is in the novels in the second half. So, so Bronson Pinchot from the Langoliers movie meets Jimmy Smits from the Tommyknockers movie. I think Jimmy Smits is in the Tommyknockers movie, <laughs> and they get to talk. Does Laura Sangiacomo from the Stand show up, or is it yeah. not played by the actors who play them in the various? Yeah, Jack, Jack Jack Nicholson meets the guy from Wings, and they get into a fight. <laughs> <laughs> mo one that spells torque wrench it's like he's yeah he's an airline mechanic it's all revealed i love it so was the was the real was the right way to do this to rebuild the stephen king cinematic universe where you systematically remade each of the classic stephen king films but you then just introduced in after credit sequences that they were taking place in the same universe and then you build the dark tower as the avengers movie that crosses over the remake of the shining with the remake of it with the remake of carrie with the remake of Christine and everybody actually, just actually sort of, yes yeah <laughs> actually yeah that would have that would have worked yeah because the 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 film adaptation Richard solves a lot of the problems uh, that you're talking about by just omitting literally everything you've mentioned. Yeah, that's what I'm hearing. <laughs> uh, the the film is is a movie about masculinity, about uh, patrimony, um, about violence, and. Uh, 
and about sort of solitude, like existential solitude. Uh, and that, and it's not, um, uh, you know, I don't know. It's not, uh, it's not totally clear. And I mean, like the, 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 it it fails on a number of levels. You could you could say that there are multiple universes of failure. <laughs> um, uh, you know the the uh, the the multiple universe the multiple universes of of failure being the 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 um, sort of multiple kind of levels of storytelling at which at which this this film fails. And it's uh, I I uh, Pete and I were were slacking about it a little bit before the uh before the the podcast and um I because I you know I asked if it was scary because I I find uh, horror movies and jump scares and things uh, fundamentally uh, profoundly unpleasant and uh, you know I don't like to like be swimming in cortisol for for two hours and I I did it last month for Dunkirk and I didn't want to do it again <laughs> and the the uh, and, and Pete said that the 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 most um, the most upsetting thing in the film, uh, he uh, uh, direct messaged me, was the images of, of child abuse as the, as the you know, psychic energy of the children is, is harvested. Well, he, he didn't say that, but the, the images of child abuse, uh, but that they weren't uh, specifically explicit and that it was a more kind of generalized sci-fi child abuse. And I said, what is it? Like, cower in fear and suffer immoderately at the, you know, at the green pulsate light of my child abuse ray and pete said yes literally that is yeah, except it's yellow it's not oh, green sorry yeah the yellow <laughs> <laughs> so i was off in one crucial respect and that that subtlety really redeemed the uh really redeemed the the whole whole movie for me um yeah, it shoots out. I mean, the the number of of long, sticky, up hard things in this movie. I mean, I, I suppose for an American movie, this shouldn't be uh, this shouldn't be surprising. But the uh, you know the the guns uh, thrusting proudly forward, the tower thrusting proudly up, the uh, the the figure of the gunslinger, kind of low angle uh, uh, up against the landscape, and th- and that everything bad in this movie is a hole or is a you know a tooth a toothed jaw that's going to devour you or uh, things like this like this is this is a a film that not only has no use for women but sees them as a as a kind of uh as a kind of malevolent force um or as ones who are who are only momentarily useful uh like the mother and the the seer uh who you know sort of do their job and are are dispensed with dispensed with forthwith i mean i was you know um well I, yeah that's that's all so, i'll say so now two two things jumped out at me that were actually interesting about the movie and one of them you just said which was i felt like in the photography of the movie there was a bunch of interesting use of negative space where they would go into environments which were sort of jagged or had lots of vertical or horizontal lines and the stuff that was empty stood out as much as the stuff that was full right they'd be in a forest full of trees and then there would be spaces between the trees and it wasn't clear i mean it, it was it was left beautifully uh, beautifully ambiguous in the composition whether the thing that you were looking at was the trees or the absence of trees. Uh, and the same thing with the sort of crenellated mountaintops, mesas that Idris Elba stands on, where it's like, are those the teeth of the earth or the teeth of the sky digging into the earth? And I thought that was interesting. Uh, the other thing that was interesting was that, would, did Coke not pay them money? 
Like that was that was, that was the uh, the lack of a product placement. Like yes. Idris Elba wrapping his hand in the most awkward fashion around the can of soda. Uh, and it's then, a can of Coke, and he doesn't show the logo and turns the nutrition label towards the audience and refuses to name what it is. Right, and it's amazing. It's like the most independent action I've seen anyone in art take. And <laughs> there's also forgotten the name of his cola. Yeah, <laughs> you know. To, to be fair, Matt, the um. The, the way that the movie treats women is maybe one of the most faithful adaptations of an aspect of the book series. Oh, uh, no. If oh, we're dear. really looking at it, it's, I mean, and I think partly, so uh, there is a, there is a podcast series that is currently ongoing uh, that is of interest to anybody who is into these books, I think called radio free Midworld. Um, it is uh, my friend Cole Ross over at the duck feed podcast network. And they're doing a sort of chapter at a time uh, book club style shows and they're i think they're into the third or fourth book at this point um but it's it's really you know it was written the first book was written by stephen king when he was 19 in the 70s and so i think that there's a lot of that it is necessarily going to be less woke than even contemporary stephen king or the stephen king of of 15 years ago kind of a little bit towards the end like after his um after his his accident uh, and then later on, he kind of goes back and tries to like make it less racist and and come up with or rationalize the earlier racism and stuff like that. Yeah, Sorry but, it, but it's, uh, no, 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 no. It's just it's just generally speaking, the the women in the in the book series are are infrequent and ill treated. Um, and and the 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 movie by omitting the only main female character, like you don't even get her slightly problematic arc. Uh, as as anything like representation in there. Um, this is really interesting because in the composition of the movie, well, the movie has a lot of very basic sort of amateur level problems with how it tells its story. And one of the problems, I think, is the presence of Catherine Winnick. And I don't mean, I mean presence with a capital P. Uh, Catherine Winnick plays the mom in this movie. I think that she is a very striking and interesting actress. I mean, she she definitely seems a and lot an, like an, Alicia Cuthbert. And an improbably young and hot mom, given the age of the dad in the pictures. But, but I mean, right, that's what's but that, but that's what stands out, right? Is that, and I, I mean, I don't mean to just say that from a, a consumptive standpoint. But when you're looking at this movie, you're trying to figure out early on what are the details that stand out to me as notable that are the things that I should latch onto and should think are interesting or strange, so that I know what's going to be important later in the movie. And the big thing that sticks out is that Jake has an improbably young and, and attractive mom, uh, and who, who's very striking and charismatic. And it's sort of like when uh, some, it's like in the Americans when some semi-major actor shows up from another cable TV show in a, like a super minor role and you're like there's no possible way that person is going to stay minor role through this movie right this 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 person stands out this person is supposed to be a big part of the story and, and sure so, it's it's yeah. the it's the law and order SVU guest star problem right you, yes, it, it yes. saps the the top guest star is the is the criminal right like it saps all the the suspense out of the who done it yeah, exactly. And so I felt like the movie was telling us early on that Jake's mom was going to be a really important character, and then she totally, she literally evaporates in the second half of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> and and apparently, I guess, was not important in The Dark Tower. The book's based on the fact that you've mentioned that the only important female character in the books is not in the movie. So, uh, and also because you said that, the, that it was an interracial courtship. And I believe that, well, so the movie is trying to be a little more woke because they made Roland black. And Roland is is white in the books, the gunslinger. 
Not yeah, he's always described as like basically terrestrial. being yep. Clint Eastwood is yeah, essentially yes. what it. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. <laughs> Fair enough. What, well, what do you make? So, so hold on. So, <laughs> so we've got the overthinking and foremost expert on Matthew McConaughey here on the podcast. I want to hear your take on Matthew McConaughey's performance in this movie. Uh, what you have to say about Matthew McConaughey as Walter, which is a rather pedestrian name for a supernatural wizard of the highest order. But there you go, Walter, the time traveling despot. Or what yeah, it is. his his last name his last name in the book is Odim. O- apostrophe d-i-m is he irish i'm not sure (laughs) um you know i mean so he's he's kind of the the like the villain from more or less every stephen king story right yeah he is he is the randall flag he is the 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 I don't know if he was he the proprietor of Needful Things. I don't know that they ever actually say that (laughs) you know he's like sort of the bad guy in everything i you know I, i am Part of, part of the reason I have be- chosen to become such an expert on Matthew McConaughey is I find <laughs> I find that his charms actually work on me pretty well. And I, I think he was one of the least embarrassing things about this film. I mean, it, it's I think there's a there's a kind of I forget what actor played flag in the miniseries of The Stand that came out in the 90s. But it, it, I think I think it was, McConaughey it was Jamie a, Sheridan. Jamie Sheridan is the guy's name. Uh, I just happen to have it up because I, I, I felt the same thing you felt, but continue. Yeah, and I, I think McConaughey is better in that role. I, like, I think there's a there's a kind of a swagger that comes across in that character that anybody else would have to fake, but Matthew McConaughey <laughs> just kind of naturally has it. So, uh, yeah, that, that's that's something that I actually really did like about this adaptation. And McConaughey's performance made me wish that the movie had been better so that maybe they could have made some sequels to it. Uh, yeah, there, we continue to see him do that. He was very. It was uh, the his malevolence was the thing. His kind of very the the charisma kind of coupled to the malevolence without necessarily like sometimes when movie stars play a bad guy, there's a lot of like uh, there's a lot of signaling that goes around the issue of like aren't I brave to be not liked even a little bit uh, in this film? And um, one of the uh, one of the notable things about about Matthew McConaughey. In this is that he's just very, you know, uh, he's he's just very willing to be very suavely cruel um, and very sort of suavely malevolent in his sort of quiet, sexy way, rather than being, uh, you know, what I mean, rather than than twirling his mustache in quite the, you know, um, in quite the way that you that you uh, that you might expect from someone going against type in this uh, in this particular way. Though I guess that's always, I guess, is sort of. Uh, uh, an element of malice has always been his um, has always been kind of in his his wheelhouse, right? Yeah, and I think that's what the I think that's what the character calls for in this case because I, my my kind of read on Stephen King's repeated use of this guy, and specifically the fact that I guess this is a spoiler, but at the at the end of the stand when he is defeated, the last chapter is him sort of being reborn on an island somewhere and like starting to to just naturally rise to power again. And it, it almost feels like it is literally presented as just kind of a force of nature. Like the universe needs some evil in it. So it just creates this guy and he tends to be the same guy with the same name all the time. Uh, but he's not really motivated by anything other than just kind of casually destroying things that he notices. Wait, is he, is he the one that was prophesied to bring balance to the force? 
<laughs> yeah, I guess so. I think there's a there's a turtle maybe that acts as his opposite uh, that appears in a lot of things. It's um, it gets a little murky. Well, that, I thought his know, enemy was sand. I thought sand was his biggest enemy because it's so for, rough and coarse and it gets it everywhere. Fortunately, the 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 name of the Chinese financier, the Chinese production partner on this film, uh, was accompanied by a graphic of a turtle, which is apparently their logo. So that's uh, you know that's actually an important part of the adaptation, I guess. I think that comp- that is also the name of a company that appears in the book. So I think that that company was like sort of named to be on theme. Um, gotcha. So it's a show. They, they actually formed a holding a holding company just so that it could be named that with that symbology. Because um, they so it's did like some... Umbrella Corporation sponsored a Resident Evil movie. Yeah, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, is it? Um, that's 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 interesting. I I had just assumed that that this was the way they were trying to get into the uh, trying to get into the Chinese market, which shows that that I'm racist, or else I see too many movies these days. Ted is Vietnamese anyway, right? <laughs> <laughs> so here's here's the big problem I felt like with the issue. So. I've been thinking a lot about good actors in bad stories because I watch uh, the latest seasons of Game of Thrones. And sorry, I shouldn't be so mean about it. Um, but uh, but what I mean is, in those situations, you have characters where the complexity is literally like dr- or figuratively dropping away as the story progresses, as the story is being streamlined, and you're seeing which actors are capable of carrying their character across narrower and narrower bridges, and which one require the support of the story in order to make the character work. And it's interesting to think about a character who's really sneering and mustache twirling and evil in a superficial way as doing some of the work of the story to provide a reason to oppose the villain. <laughs> because if because uh, of Matthew McConaughey, while I like his smoothness in the movie, it wasn't really, I'm not even going to say, it's not even worth saying that it wasn't clear at all, even though that's what I just said it. But it's, it's saying, I, I don't, I don't know why he's the bad guy other than that he killed President Palmer, which is always a bad thing to do. But but um, but but what is it? I don't understand why anybody in this movie would want to destroy the Dark Tower is, I guess, the thing that that really sticks with me through the movie as its most fundamental problem. And it's a problem that might have been glossed over if Matthew McConaughey were Gary Busey. And it's just like, oh, he's just a terrible person, crazy monster. And and he wants to do this because it's the bad guy thing. But Matthew McConaughey added that certain amount of self-possession to it that made it seem like he had some sort of objective. And I, and I just wonder if the, the if is the is the man in black and this might be a question with no answer. Is the man in black, is Randall Flagg, is Walter Odim, is he an entity in himself or is he a shadow or manifestation of the experience and cultural artifacts of other people? Is, is he the face of the abusive parent uh, or uncle or what have you that comes to the child at night? Uh, then sort of all of the pieces of all of those memories synthesized into one person, the boogeyman, uh, but the real boogeyman, the boogeyman that comes from life or is he an agent in his own fully realized self that is going about this because of decisions that he's made uh and and i and i don't think the movie even really chooses between those two paths for this character is is this all symbolic and is walter a force of nature 
or is this a naturalistic drama and Walter is a person who has really messed up reasons for doing what he's doing, even if he's a wizard from another planet, which would mean that his reasons have to be somewhat abstracted from human reasons by a couple of levels of intermediation, but should still be at least remotely understandable. Right, you're, really deep sci-fi. So you're asking, yeah. you're asking in essence, is he Heath Ledger's Joker or is he Voldemort? Right. Yeah. Because those, yeah. Are, those are sort of the, the polls. And it doesn't even I mean, even schematically, you could think of a story like this as a story about like a choice between the good father and the bad father. Right. Like mm-hmm. a choice, a, a choice for a child of like uh, choosing the correct patrimony. Um which would be very sort of medieval fantasy or very kind of medieval in its, uh, in its conception. But the, uh, uh, the, um, the problem is that uh, it doesn't even work on that. Uh, it doesn't even work on that level because you're not, I'm not totally sure. Right. I'm not totally sure what the, the tower represents other than it seems like it's, it seems like it's good. Right. Uh, or it's, it's, but it's, it's dark valuable. and dark is often bad. Yeah, which is because the movie, as you've mentioned, there's a lot of tough, uh, tough retro, uh, retrograde racial and sexual, uh, race, racist and sexist sentiment that's baked into the story because it's from so long ago by such a young person with less self awareness than they have now. But but is the Dark Tower a good thing? One would think that the Dark Tower would be a bad thing. You can't escape the shadow of Osgiliath and you know minus Morgul and, and such. The uh, Dark Towers in fantasy stories are bad places. You know, it's uh, Osgiliath. Yeah. Yeah, just just to name a few, right? Well, yeah, in the land of Mordor, where the shadows lie. A little, yeah. I mean, the shadows. I mean, the the other thing, like this, and this is true of. There's what? There's a. Is it a film adaptation of it, or is it a, a Netflix? That I don't know. It all blends together to, uh, to me now that I that I keep seeing trailers for around and like sort of peering into the drain, into the storm drain, or in this, it it seems like there there are a, uh, a lot of times uh, in this film where. Um, uh, young Master Chambers, what's his first name? Jake, where JC is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> where, uh, where JC is sort of peering through a slat, right? Uh, or kind of like pe- is, is in hiding and peering, looking on something that, that, uh, that he shouldn't see. And this is like, I mean, it's, it's funny that he's sort of stuck in a, uh, um, just just to talk about kind of retrograde sexual politics, it's almost developmentally retrograde, right? Like he's he's stuck in a in uh, Oedipal childhood a little bit, and like peering into the primal scene, right? At whatever it is that that Roland does to uh, whatever it is that Roland does to those you know gaping yonic orifices uh, on in the uh, on the other side of the on the other side of the slat outside of outside of his hiding place, and and the film sort of comes down on the side of like yeah it's it's just you and me kid right there's no uh you know um you, you have the the thing that roland says that that had such an impression on me at the, the the end of the film was like there's nothing for you here or you have nothing left here uh right that like you know and that was sort of that was uh uh, pretty quick, right? Like the, the kid has no grandparents, no like extended family, like no no favorite teachers or something, or no yeah. you know. I mean, no he copy has copy of Zelda Breath of the Wild to play, like <laughs> or a... no copy of West of Loathing, which would be, maybe that's the problem is that this is a pre West of Loathing movie, and if you were to make it after West of Loathing, the kid would have a no, reason uh, to live. You know, the, the, the problem the problem with this <laughs> movie a... is that there's not enough loathing in it, right? <laughs> yeah, it's that's too... true. No, it's it's interesting, Matt. Like the 
in a lot of ways, they seem to have kind of adapted the the character of Jake from from the book, but it but fundamentally changed Jake's relationship to the to our world, to the real world. Like he was basically his dad is depicted as like a sort of hotshot TV exec coke fiend guy and his mom is just sort of gone all the time and he has sort of a relationship with their housekeeper but that's it and so it's kind of like he kind of disappears and moves into roland's world and no one cares and he doesn't really care about anything that he left behind this is a preoccupation uh, i mean not liking scary things i don't read stephen king as you can imagine so the the this is a preoccupation of stephen king though right like like mistreated children or children whose whose sort of yeah. sort of uniqueness is not acknowledged or whose needs are not tended to yeah. right but who secretly have mental powers that make them you know superhuman and and critical in terms of plot significance um <laughs> But but also the there are there are very very explicit edible overtones to the entire story also um, in the sense to, of killing to the, the to, father to um, the entire ser- series of yeah. books well weirdly like I I don't know I th- I think it hints at this and then finally so I, like the fourth book in the series is largely just a, a flashback to the childhood of the main character and he ends up sort of accidentally killing his mother and that's where uh, that's where a lot of his sort of energy comes from um interesting and and you know he himself as a child is shown seeing some things that he wasn't supposed to see and that's kind of what sets him on this quest like all he wants is to get to the tower and to stop flag the man in black from doing whatever it is that he wants to do to it because he couldn't stop that from happening with his mother yeah oh okay that makes sense Um, that makes sense and so it's yeah i don't know you know it's it's such a weird it's such a weird thing to try to adapt and to try to make a 90 minute story out of out of even even just the plot, it's not like a really, really action-heavy series of books, but like there's a lot of them and a lot of stuff happens. And to try to present it in this way that's it's really just sort of trying to maintain the tone while remaining just necessarily devoid of context felt like it was just kind of doomed to be nonsense, well, it, especially I mean, to someone who didn't who, who who didn't know where where the books were coming from. Right. That uh, the, the, this is I suppose this is a problem that they have. I mean, I don't know. There are a bunch of adaptations that we could talk about, like uh, uh, the Lord of the Rings films. Maybe Baywatch. <laughs> Baywatch reboot. <laughs> Where um, they couldn't grasp the complexity of Baywatch <laughs> when they made the reboot of it, so it's entirely confused and lost. And also, right, exactly, and also feel, uh, uh, featured a, a performance a performance much better uh, than the film by a hugely charismatic movie star that uh, you know who was who was sort of out of out of place in the film. I mean, I don't know. As we as we sort of uh, steer our quest towards uh, towards uh, its end. Um, as we like, uh, you know, I don't know what. Like, uh, as we we destroy the child abuse ray that is this podcast. The uh, th- the thing that we might spend a couple minutes on are like the the 
goal here because like there there is a commercial goal of creating like a sony powered uh dark dark tower paracosm like extended universe sort of thing that that i guess is set to include a uh netflix series uh and then another concluding movie and probably like a theme park and maybe a, a, a line of lunch boxes and you know all the all the normal things that that uh that go along with this right like like uh dark tower miniatures that you can you know buy buy for your china cabinet a new new cotet social app where you can form your own cotet with your buddies is that that's a thing right i've 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 read the wikipedia pages i know sort of what happens (laughs) (laughs) but the the you know that that um and that like uh, as a as a kind of a uh, a means of storytelling uh, or as a th- this is i suppose a new a new thing given this commercial aspiration that every that everyone wants to have like an extended universe um the way that uh, because disney is hogging all of them and uh and everyone everyone wants their own extended universe to play with and to to kind of wring billions of dollars out of over the course of uh over the course of decades and i mean it goes to it goes to a number of uh, uh, convergent trends in, you know, the the modern economy and modern entertainment and the increasingly globalized world and stuff that we've talked about on the the podcast before. I don't know. Do, does and so this sort of story, like the kind of very intentional origin story of a of an extended universe that other stories are going to be told in, um, is I guess a sort that we're going to have to start uh, knowing about, going to have to start like theorizing about a little bit. And like, I don't know, it just, it strikes me if uh, that this is a, a unique, not exactly unique because there are other instances of it, but this is a notable thing about this film. And that like, I don't know, do, does either of you have any um, thoughts about the, uh, about this film in, in that light? Well, I think I, that they, oh, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say, I think that this, I think that this material was a bad choice for that goal <laughs> is the main, is the main problem. I mean, because, you know, you, you could definitely do other stuff that took place in the setting. And, you know, I've always, I've always sort of wished that there were, that there were video games that took place in that world because it, like the Lord of the Rings world is kind of a cool world to just sort of fart around in, it seems like, but it like the Lord of the Rings is really about a specific person on a specific trip to achieve a specific thing, and so you. It seems anything that you tried to do with it, other than that, anything that you tried to do to sort of establish anything else happening in that setting, is going to be kind of like a Silmarillion-y thing that no one cares about. Um, yeah, I would I would add that when you build a framework like this and you build a franchise like this, one of the things that you're doing is you're creating an, an opportunity. You're creating a framework on which a whole lot of different creative artists are going to put their own work. And when one of those is successful and creates commercial energy and popular energy, it gives you an opportunity to showcase a wide variety of, of excellence if you want to. And one of the things we've talked about is how even bad movies today tend to have a lot of really excellent work done on them. The sh- the exploding boats in Baywatch, notwithstanding, uh, there were some really well-shot scenes in that movie. Uh, they just didn't hang together. But, but the main thing is that if you're going to build a superstructure, if you're going to build the Dark Tower, <laughs> the, the tower is without ornament, but the movie is not. So one of the things that's interesting is, okay, 
the the costumes in this movie are they really the best costumes that you can make it, or rather like do they showcase an artist who's taking the opportunity to put something out there that's new and interesting uh, and and taking the the chance that is offered by having a a franchise that will bring eyeballs to it you're you're putting this thing in the center of people's attention for a whole host of reasons that are baked into our cultural history and and when people look you want them to see the awesome stuff that your people would be doing anyway. So if you have somebody who's doing awesome costume work for something else, put them on the Dark Tower, and and they can see it. And there was not... I didn't feel like there was this sort of depth of... And not just in the special effects, although that's a big part of it. The CGI wood monster was really stupid. Uh, and, and there's a lot of the special effects were unimpressive. A lot of the costuming was unimpressive. Uh, I think a lot of the... Um, the art direction was a little garbled and confusing, uh, and, and I just felt like that, at the very least, you have this exotic world that is already straining credulity, and that gives you a certain amount of license and freedom to do with it what you want rather than what's expected. And then what we end up with is just a bunch of gravel, and I feel like that's the biggest loss in The Dark Tower, even more than even more than losing the story, which I understand might have just been more Moby Dick than, than anyone was capable of shoving a harp poon through at any point in the last 10 years uh but but just the idea that like if you'd given this movie to like um even even if you give if you had given it to guy Ritchie, at least at least everything would have looked awesome i mean i guess because <laughs> in king arthur they have giant elephants and the giant elephants have nothing to freaking do with king arthur but they're freaking giant elephants and you look at them and you're like them some them some giant elephants yeah it's, king arthur legend of the sword yeah if you you could have, you could have had an interesting failure along the lines of david lynch's dune yeah. <laughs> would have been upgrade this, right would have been an yeah, upgrade no i mean but and i think like that, like David Lynch's Dune, you know, I saw it at the right time as a kid, and it like meant a lot to me, and really, it sort of informed the way that I approached both David Lynch and Dune later. Uh, and and I, you know, <laughs> two, two someone... of the trivium, according to classic, Greek, <laughs> it's it's mathematics, David Lynch and Dune, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah there three. you go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but I mean, you could have done, you know, I guess maybe a Jodorowsky's Dark Tower. <laughs> <laughs> um, the the two two like. Uh, observations about the costumes one is that like it's a bad uh bad thing costume wise when the like the sweat stain on the t-shirt is inconsistent from shot to shot you know (laughs) that's just bad you know someone someone took their polaroids wrong uh you know from day to day or when the actor goes through puberty between the first shoot and the reshoots (laughs) but yeah and like right exactly loses yeah exactly loses a lot of weight and becomes yeah that's a uh yeah actually kind of like bieber's right a little bit like you remember that remember remember when uh justin bieber uh went through that but but we're not talking about jb we're talking about jc the other thing is just not acknowledging the reality not like honoring any sort of uh, realistic thing at all, like that. Uh, that those jeans, that T-shirt, and that hoodie were just as clean in the last shot of the movie after no laundry was done than than they were at at the beginning of movie the, at the beginning of the movie. But then the the sort of the good costume moment comes, at, you know, no surprise, courtesy of Matthew McConaughey when he returns uh, to Midworld and the the he throws off he throws off his coat and he sort of throws off his scarf and the, pre- you know, the sort of the presence of the black, the like thick black scarf, um, which is, which is ornamental, right? Like, uh, is a good, is a good costume touch. And 
whereas the Idris Elba character is not particularly interesting in the way he looks. I mean, it's mostly focused on his gun belt and the, the, uh, the bullets that, that, that he keeps. Yeah. In, in the, he's like, just every generic video game protagonist. Yeah. Uh, and outfit, the leather trench coat thing. Right. Exactly. There's no, there's nothing particularly, there's nothing particularly yeah. unique or interesting about it. It also struck if me that if your outfit has been made fun of in an episode of it's always sunny in Philadelphia, it is no longer cutting edge. <laughs> right. With, with like the duster. I have the duster, man. Oh, Jesus. Anyway, sorry. Sorry. Take us. That's, home, yeah. That's, oh. that's uh, the Jay Peterman, right? Like yeah. classic, uh, classic coder. I remember seeing uh, illustrations of it in in the thing. Well, uh, you know, I don't know. Perhaps a, a bit of a missed opportunity as as uh, a film, and and for me, you know, uh, that's ninety minutes of of cortisol that my soft tissues will never recover from. But let's uh, let's leave it there and say that it was it was a wonderful opportunity to have uh, Zach on the show and to have an occasion to talk about West of Loathing, which drops this week, August tenth, uh, on Steam. There's a link to that in the show notes. Zach, thanks very much for joining us on the show. Hey, thank you, thank you so much. I, I always I always love to talk about the the ways that Matthew McConaughey can disappoint us all. <laughs> <laughs> it's not him. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it, Matthew McConaughey. He is more. It's more like he he positions himself adjacent to our disappointment, which is you know like uh, just uh, he can just time jump from portal to portal to uh, be right there from uh, uh, right there when when a film is uh, when a film is going to let us down. Well, time is a flat circle, Matt. <laughs> I guess. I guess so. Uh, thanks very much to Pete, to Mark, and to Richard, and thank you for uh, listening. Uh, like I said, uh, check out Steam for West of Loathing, and join us for the next episode of the Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. deserve.